We'll be looking at John chapter 12 this morning <clears throat> and elsewhere. It's one of the great mysteries of the faith. How, how could one person be God, the one who made everything, who knows everything, who is everywhere, who has infinite power? How can one person be God and be human, finite, limited, and subject to death at the same time? But that's what Christians believe about Jesus. We believe he was completely human, as human as you or me. He got hungry, he got sleepy, he got his feelings hurt, he got angry. At times he was dead on his feet. But he was also completely God. He was not God's best creation, like the Jehovah's Witnesses mistakenly say. He was and is as much God as is the Father Almighty. And he wasn't half God and half man, like Hercules. He was completely God and completely human. And he wasn't completely God part of the time and completely human the rest of the time, like someone with multiple personality disorder. He was completely God and completely human at the same time, one person, two natures. That's what the theologians describe as the hypostatic union. And it's a mystery. Now, why have I spent the last 50 seconds or so talking about this? I mean, what possible difference can that make in your relationship to your husband or your kids? What difference can it make when you're at work or when you're tempted to overeat or watch porn? Makes a huge difference. The fact that Jesus was completely human, as human as you and me, that he emptied himself and took the form of a servant, that he experienced the human limitations of knowledge and intellect, means that he knows the ropes. He's been where we are. He's been through the exhilaration of success and through the profound grief of loss. He knows what it is to be misunderstood. He's felt the ache that comes from rejection. He knows the struggle of desperately wanting one thing and getting another. He knows. And he knows what to do about it. He's been where we are. You know that Jesus needed to learn? He needed to learn to walk and talk and do what his parents told him to do. The scripture tells us that the young Jesus grew in wisdom And more remarkably still, he, though he was perfect, learned obedience, the author of Hebrews tells us. Has it ever occurred to you that like the rest of us, Jesus had to make tough choices in his life? This thing or that thing? He knows how to do that. That's what we've been talking about in the last few weeks, the important role our decisions play in shaping us into the people God longs for us to be. And as we've seen again and again, God uses a process in our lives that involves insight, decision, and implementation. Like us, Jesus had to make tough choices and go through that process. Being the Son of God did not exempt him from the very human responsibility of making decisions. The author of Hebrews writes that he was made like his brothers in every way. And if that was not enough, he's been tempted or tested, the word could mean, in every way, just as we are. He's the only one of us who has ever successfully navigated life 
without damaging his humanity by disobeying God. Alexander Pope said to err is human, and perhaps he was right, but to sin is not human. Believe it or not, and quite the contrary, sin damages our humanity and makes us less and less human. People excuse their sins, their hatred and their lust and their anger and greed and unforgiveness by saying, I'm only human. But we don't do these things because we're only human. We do them because we're not yet human enough. Our humanity has been impaired. It's been marred. But Jesus can restore our damaged humanity to its intended form, to his form. He's the only one who can do that. He knows how. Today we're looking at a decision Jesus had to make, one that's very important to all of us. And we want to see how he went through that process I just described. And the final week before the crucifixion, probably on Monday or Tuesday of that week, some Greek worshipers who were in Jerusalem for the Passover feast asked for a meeting with Jesus. They approached the apostle Philip. Philip is a Greek name. They were Greeks. They went to Philip and requested this interview. Philip, who is the patron saint of the perpetually perplexed, Philip never quite knows what's going on. I love Philip. He went to Andrew. Andrew, what am I going to do? And together they went to Jesus. Whether they actually asked Jesus about it, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But Jesus seemed to see the arrival of these Greeks as evidence that things were wrapping up, that the time of his suffering was at hand. Now we're going to pick up the story in verse 23, John chapter 12. Jesus replied, so the Greeks have come, talked to Philip. Philip's found Andrew. They've both gone to Jesus, said, perhaps, hey, these Greeks want to meet you. And Jesus said, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus has long known that the cross was in his future. He's forewarned his closest friends about it repeatedly. But now the far-off future is on the doorstep. And he knows he has a decision to make. He tells his friends that his heart is troubled. The Greek word that John uses means literally stirred up. And it's used, literally, of rough water. But more often, it's used figuratively. It's translated as disturbed, frightened, terrified, thrown into confusion. You and I know what that is. You feel shaken on the inside. Your mind is like a pot on the boil. You can't rest. To think that Almighty God would humble himself and go through that experience, like all the rest of us, is just mind-boggling. 
When he became a man, he did not become a man of steel, but a man of flesh and blood and nerves, like all the rest of us. And that doesn't move you to gratitude, to awe and admiration. I don't know what will. He did this for us. It's as if in this moment when the salvation of the world hangs in the balance, Jesus lets us in. He lets us listen in to the thoughts that are going through his mind. Now my heart is troubled. Literally, my soul is stirred up. And what shall, or better, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? You know what? I think that's what he wanted to say. The horror of what awaited him. Not just the torture of his body, but the anguish of his soul as he bore the sins of the world, yours and mine, was repugnant to him. This is not some abstract academic question. This is not a question about some distant future. This is a question of life or death or something worse than death in the next couple of days. Now you may think, well, what choice did he have in this in the matter? But he did have a choice in the matter. That's why he asks, what should I say? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? He could say that. But he doesn't. He says instead, Father, glorify your name. For the follower of Jesus, this is enormously important. It's an enormously important component of making decisions. Well, choosing this, glorify God's name. Yes, it may make me more comfortable, but will it glorify God's name? It may make me money, but will it glorify God's name? It may get me out of the bind I'm in, make me feel better, please my friends and my family, but will it glorify God's name? Did you see how Jesus approached this? He doesn't come at it from the negative. He doesn't say, Father, in my decision, keep me from dishonoring your name. No, he he approached it from the positive. Father, glorify your name. In making a decision, consider how to bring glory to God in your life, in your situation. Now, decisions may be, and sometimes they must be, made in a moment. But understand, we talked about this last week, they, they may be made in a moment, but they come out of a lifetime. Or more precisely, they come out of a character. Jesus chose to glorify God by yielding to his will and going to the cross of shame and death. But understand, he'd been choosing to glorify God throughout his life on earth. Glorifying God was the imprint, which is what the Greek word character, character. It was the imprint on his soul, and it guided his decisions. The thought of glorifying God was behind everything he did. It's what lies behind the answers to prayer that he gives. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. That was his motivation. It was his desire, even in the midst of conflict with others, to the people who are arguing with him. You read about this in John chapter 8. He could say, I honor my Father. The glory of his Father figured into all his decisions. Now, earlier I said Jesus had a choice in the matter, a terrible choice. I based that on the fact that he asked, not rhetorically, I think, what should I say? But there's another reason I think he had a choice in the matter. When the moment of decision came, 
when his enemy's thugs surrounded him and his own followers began to fight, it was the moment to stand or flee, Jesus said, don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly. Even at that moment, he had no doubt about it. He could choose to escape. He could escape the cross and the pain and the shame that went with it. Now, we need to understand something about this. There's something important here. Otherwise, we're going to go through unnecessary confusion and our souls are going to be more troubled than they need be. When you have a decision to make, particularly one of those important life direction decisions, it will be made in phases. There's a pre-decision phase, there's a decision phase, there's even a post-decision phase. Or to put it differently, maybe to put it better, we will make a decision and then we'll have to make it again. And possibly yet again. Jesus made the pre-decision long before. He'd been telling his disciples what was going to happen for months. But on that day when the Greeks came and asked for a visit, it was clear to him that the time for finalizing that decision was at hand. And he reaffirmed it with the words, Father, glorify your name. But even then, he could have reversed his decision. It was later in the garden that the drop-dead date arrived, the last possible moment to reverse his decision. And he had to affirm it once again. He knew he could still get out of this. He could call 12 legions of angels to his aid. That's what the original language says. One legion has over 12,000 angels for him and one for each of his disciples. See, it wasn't too late. But see, he had already logicked his way through this. Remember what he said when the Greeks came? He lets us listen to what he's thinking. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies. Who's he thinking about? He's thinking about himself. It remains only a single seed. He understood what his decision entailed. He knew that his sacrifice would mean salvation for the world. He'd been through all of this in his mind and in prayer perhaps innumerable times. He knew that he could save himself but only at the cost of not saving others. Our decisions are made and then remade and sometimes made again until that drop-dead moment when circumstances ask, is that your final answer? Once we grasp that, we can look at our own experience and it begins to make sense. We decide something. We're going to start going to church. And we congratulate ourselves on our decision. But on Sunday morning, after being out late on Saturday night, we reach the drop-dead date, the last possible moment to reverse our decision. And that's when character takes over. The imprint on our souls, formed by millions of decisions already made, will exercise enormous influence over what we do next. The same thing takes place when we decide we're going to stop drinking or change our eating habits, or take a college course, or get married. We don't make the decision once, but multiple times. A guy says in his guilt, I'm never going to look at pornography again. And he means it. But the impression left on his soul by his previous decisions, that is his character, reverses his decision when the moment of truth comes. A woman's insight is that she will glorify God by staying with her neglectful husband. 
And that's what she decides to do. She really, really decides to do that. But the next time he neglects her, the next time he shows more attention to his buddies than to her, or to his buddies' wives than to her, her character, the imprint on her soul, takes over. Now, does it sound as if making the right decision is hopeless? I can see why it would sound that way. You cannot overcome your character. You cannot overcome character. It's impossible. And that leaves us in a pretty tough spot. But what is impossible for us is not impossible for God. We are not hopeless because we are not helpless. We have help. We can make decisions and stick to them even though we've never stuck to them before. The guy who's caught in an addiction can change. Now, it seems counterintuitive, but the best thing he can do is not to muster all his willpower in an effort to overcome his addiction once and for all. Willpower alone is not going to do it. He needs to acknowledge that he lacks the power to prevail and ask and accept help from God. And once that's done, he needs to decide to take the first step of obedience, the step that he can, with God's help, take. That will not be to overcome his habit forever. But it may be to call a friend and say, hey, look, I need some help. I need to talk. Or to go to church or to ask forgiveness. Maybe he can't break his habit forever today, but he can do this one thing. And that new direction, that new decision begins ever so slightly to change the imprint on his soul. The next little decision, probably have nothing to do with his addiction at all, will change that imprint further as will the next one, and that will alter his trajectory. Now look, what's true of the attic is true of all of us. We're all trapped. We're all addicted to certain behavior, certain ways of thinking and relating that prevent us from experiencing the fullness of the eternal life that Jesus died to give us. And the way out for us is the same as for him. We need God's help. You need God's help. And because that's true, one of the fundamental practices for making good decisions is prayer. When Jesus had decisions to make, he prayed. He prayed before taking his teaching ministry on the road. He was up early in the morning and out praying. He prayed the entire night before he decided on who his apostles would be. When he went up on a mountain to pray prior to telling his closest friends about his upcoming sufferings. And he was praying on the night when he was arrested. You cannot live a Christian life without prayer. Let me say that again. You cannot live a Christian life without prayer. If you're not praying, you're living a sub-Christian life. You cannot make decisions that are consistent with Jesus' leadership in your life without prayer. And it's not just asking for prayer once in a while from others, but praying regularly, consistently, and passionately yourself. Before his arrest, when his soul was being tossed and turned like the waves of a rough sea, Jesus went to his favorite place, the Gethsemane Garden, and he prayed. 
The drop-dead date, the no-turning-back moment for his decision had come, and when it arrived, what was he doing? He was praying. His prayer was no longer a weighing of pros and cons. He'd already done that. He wasn't mulling over the facts. He was asking his father, if possible, to come up with another plan to glorify his name and save the world. His prayer that night was not theologically sophisticated, nor was it eloquent. His prayers that night were cries for help. Abba, he said to his father, Abba, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Take it from me. Take it from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You realize, don't you, that request went unanswered. Andrew Murray says, for our sins, he suffered under the burden of unanswered prayer. When the Bible says he was made like his brothers in every way, this way was not omitted. He too knows what it is to pray specifically, repeatedly, and desperately for something and be turned down. After praying, he got up and he went back to his friends. They're just a short distance away. And he talked with them briefly, and then he turned around and went back to prayer. And Matthew tells us that in that second prayer, he said to God, My father, Abba, Abba, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. As he continued praying, his request began to change and his resolve began to harden. After returning to his friends once again, he went back to pray a third time. This time we're not told the exact words of his prayer. But it seems to me that each time he prays, he progresses further to this final decision. And it's marvelous to see the power of making a decision. When Jesus came into the garden, his soul was agitated like a rolling sea. He told his closest friends, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Luke says that he was in anguish and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And yet as soon as that drop dead point of no return moment had passed and his decision finalized, there was not a hint of agitation about him. He was now totally in control. When that roughshod posse came to arrest him, he ordered them around. And he remained in control before the high priest, before the ruling council, and before the Roman procurator. He was confident, at peace, and in control. That's the power of making a decision. So what's the take-home for us? The take-home is this. Think through your decisions. Clear thinking always favors good. Poor thinking or no thinking favors evil. I've noticed in myself and in others, when we resist thinking about a decision, it's coming up, but we don't want to think about it. It's often because deep down we've already decided against God's way. Think through your decisions. 
a major consideration in that thinking ought to be God's glory. How can I best honor God in this situation? And then pray. Take your decision to God. Spend time with him. Pay attention to what thoughts come to your mind. Believe that grace is coming to your soul. It's a bad decision to make any decision of consequence apart from prayer. And one last thing. Don't wait until you need to make some major decision to do this. The everyday decisions we make are more important than we can possibly realize. The decision not to tell the truth in this situation. The decision to pamper ourselves in this situation. Those are important decisions because they leave an imprint on our souls. They create the character out of which all our future decisions are going to flow. All right, let's pray. Let's bow our heads. And, and perhaps you're facing a decision you need to make in the next few weeks. You know you need to make it. Would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Would you do that? All right. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will impress on the folks who raise their hands the things you want them to get out of this and tell them even more about what you have for them. But Lord, more than getting the decision right, I pray that you'll help them get in line with you into the flow of what you're doing, what your purposes are, and then help them to decide. And we are glad, Lord Jesus, For the decision you made. We could not have made it. But praise God, you're not like us. And praise God even more, someday we'll be like you. Let it be, Lord. In your good name, Jesus, amen.